On this Info Pilgrims Live podcast, we sit down with Programs Director of the Twig, Callie Cowan, and we talk about what does it take for a nonprofit to thrive in today's world. It's an exciting episode you do not want to miss, so let's go. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Info Pilgrims Live podcast recorded live at the beautiful Collab Studios in Venice, Florida. I am of course your host Jack May and this week we are joined by a very special guest. She has over 10 years experience in the nonprofit sector. She is the current programs director of The Twig which is a nonprofit benefiting foster children. She has so many accolades so I'm losing my breath already. She is also the host of the Doing Good Well podcast. Join me in welcoming Callie Cowan. Callie, thank you so much for joining us this week. Well, thanks for having me on the show. So obviously you have a very unique background. I, I just want to start off. What was the first moment in your life that you knew, hey, I'm going to be a different person? Well, I feel like God had put something in my heart when I was a kid um, to help those in need. And if you look back through my life, there's been a lot of those kinds of situations where I felt like I needed to do something. I couldn't just see somebody who was in trouble and not do something on their behalf. So even from an elementary school, there was a girl who they were raising money for her. She needed heart surgery. And I was the one who was putting up jars in the lunchroom to collect <laughs> money for that. I've always been a fundraiser um, ever since then. Um, and there's just been different times in my life where God has put different needs in front of me and kind of said, I want you to do something about this. And once I get that idea in my head, um, I really can't stop. And so there's just it's looked differently at different times in my life. Um, but one of the ones that he really put on my heart was the cause of um, orphans and children in foster care. And there's a lot of reasons behind that. I read an article about orphans in Romania um, that changed my life. I mean, everything that a magazine article <clears throat> can't change someone's life, it absolutely can. <laughs> um, I read a Guidepost magazine article about these kids um, who were orphans in Romania, and I said, I need to do something about that. I collected shoes for um, orphans in Romania. I ended up spending a summer in Romania working with orphans. What was your age right around that time? I was in... I was just after my first year of college. Okay, okay. So I think when I was a senior in high school, I started doing the shoe drive. And then I spent the first summer after I started college in Romania working in orphanages. And it just is really, there's been a common thread through my life of helping people like that. My little sister was adopted from foster care when I was 15. That will change you. Um, <laughs> and being able to see that up close and personal, um, that's actually why I went to law school was I wanted to do adoption law. I wanted to help kids who were in the foster care system. I have an undergraduate degree in international studies, which is the work that I did in Romania, the work I've done in Guatemala. Um, all that kind of played into it. So let's talk about your undergraduate degree. Obviously, it's from UNC. We won't hold that against you. Oh, come on now. So what brought you to UNC? Because you're, you're a Florida girl born and raised, correct? It's kind of a funny story, actually. Yeah, I yes. wanted to hear this. <laughs> I am a Florida girl, um, born and raised, and I did my first two years of undergrad actually at Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. But I really wanted to go to, um, I wanted to go somewhere where I had more of an international kind of take on things. And mm -hmm. so I started looking at other universities. And no joke, the reason I applied to UNC Chapel Hill is because my now husband was obsessed with North Carolina because of Michael Jordan. That's and amazing. so that is literally the reason I applied to go to school there, not for their academics, but because, well, you know what? He really likes their basketball team. So, <laughs> you know, and I think it's a good school. And so I ended up transferring to UNC Chapel Hill after my second year of college. 
and uh, was able to graduate there with a degree in international studies and have a really interesting experience um, at UNC Chapel Hill, which then led me on to law school and other things like that. So it was a very, I don't know, it was a well thought out reason to choose a school. But <laughs> once I got in, I was like, well, I guess I'm going Listen, to UNC. My, Michael Jordan as a choice for anything is a great choice. There like, there's no denying that. So and we won a national championship in basketball while I was there. I graduated in December and we won the national championship. Was, was that the uh, Sean May? It was. Uh, that, that was a like they had Raymond Felton. Who else did you guys have on that? That oh, team was man. loaded. It was yes, it was it was a good time. There were so many great players. Actually, I got I hung out with Sean quite a bit when we Look were at in these school. humble brags. I know. <laughs> there you go. Right there there out you with go. Sean May, NBA player, right there. <laughs> <laughs> and but it was a good time because it really introduced me to a lot of different things at UNC Chapel Hill. It was there was a large um, international population mm. there. The Research Triangle is an incredible place um, mm. with lots of just really smart people from lots of different areas I grew a lot I learned a lot during that time um, and then that propelled me into the next season of going to law school see and I, I think that's so unique about you is the fact is like your whole life you've been focused on this like nothing has deterred you which is unique because like growing up I wanted to be a lawyer I went to you know I went to college for it and then I was like nah this isn't for me but like your whole passion has directed you this your whole life so after you left UNC you went to where, where did you go for I college? went to Stetson College Stetson, of Law right. but here's what's interesting it may appear that way from the outside, like everything <laughs> in your life has pointed this direction. It hasn't always felt like it when you're actually on the road. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of times when you're looking in retrospect, oh, yeah. all this added up. But there were a lot of times when it didn't feel like I was going on some planned trajectory. It gotcha. honestly felt like I was flying by the seat of my pants. But then you look back and you see God's providence and you're like, oh, that's what you were doing <laughs> even when I didn't understand it. For instance, law school, I did not grow up wanting to be a lawyer <laughs> at all. I'm wow. still not like a, you know, law and order junkie or anything like that. I've it, it, it was honestly kind of a whim. So here's the funny story about law school is I wasn't sure what I was going to do next. I had a degree in international studies. And of course, my mom goes, open up the classifieds. Where Who is hiring for a job with that degree? <laughs> you know, it's not like you're a nurse or you're a teacher. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do with this degree? And my college roommate was taking the LSAT because she wanted to go to law school. And I bet her that I could get a higher score on the LSAT than her. Oh, my goodness. And so I took the LSAT with very little studying, admittedly. I remember cramming, like, the night before, being like, what am I doing? Um, and I actually got a really good score on it. And I was like, well, I guess I should go to law school. Um, I, I There was a little bit more conversation than that. I talked to a mentor of mine who does adoption law, and I was asking her, should I go on for my master's in social work or should I go to law school? And she really encouraged me to go to law school because she said, you can do so much with a law degree, which has been true. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wasn't someone that grew up wanting to be be, you know, in the courtroom necessarily. Gotcha. I went to law school um, at Stetson College of Law, which is a great university, a great trial advocacy school, um, number one in the country, actually, wow. in trial advocacy. And I um, I loved law school. I People talk about how they hated law school. I loved law school. I made the best friends of my life in law school. Um, it was challenging. I was around other driven people all the time. Everyone there has always been used to being the best at everything, mm-hmm. which is a definitely a humbling experience because <laughs> you all cannot be yep. in law school. Um, but I was on the trial team. I was on moot court. We traveled around. We competed. Um, I loved law school, and I was I was pretty good at litigation. Mm-hmm. I went into practicing law um, after I graduated and quickly realized it was not for me. <laughs> um, I did family law which I went into because I want to do adoption law. That's why I went to law school. But I ended up doing 95% divorce and child custody. 
um, and not adoption law. And it, so it really was not a good fit. Well, seeing that and being in courtrooms quite often myself for my field, like that is some of the most depressing stuff to be part of. It's difficult. And I that was when my husband and I got engaged as well. And oh I remember <laughs> feeling like I know the escape route too well. Mm-hmm. And also divorce was very normal to me. Mm-hmm. It, it had so normalized that when I heard people getting divorced, it wasn't a big deal to me. It didn't break my heart. It was like, well, yeah, obviously so many people get divorced. What's the big deal? Mm-hmm. And I wanted it to break my heart again. I wanted marriage to to feel different than that. Um, and so I ended up um, not practicing law anymore. And I started working for the law school, actually. That was my next step. I was in student life. So I worked with law students, which is so much fun. Wow. Um, law students come in as these one L's, you know, with their eyes just so big and they're so excited and they're gonna conquer the world. The first year of law school beats them down. Um, It scrambles their brain and I'm not kidding. Um, It makes you think differently than you've ever thought before. Um, But then you kind of are able to kind of put them back together before they graduate. And it was really fun to be around students like that. They're just, they're sharp and they're just thinking and they're challenging you all the time. And now it's really cool to see some of the students I worked with um, going on to do incredible things. And I coached the trial team a bit. So I would teach future litigators how to present their closing arguments, how to argue motions. And so I do feel a little bit like a proud parent when I see (laughs) attorneys, you know, doing amazing things and getting these huge verdicts. I'm like, oh, I remember when. Um, And so that was a really fun time in my life. Um, But then that's when I became a mom Mm. and started having kids. And that's when we decided we needed to be closer to family. (laughs) And we moved back to Venice, and I took um, the job at Pregnancy Solutions, where I was the executive director for six years. Six years. Now, what drove you to that position? Because, I mean, obviously, you don't just come back and be like, hey, you know what? This job's opening. Obviously, you are a person who thinks things through. So what drove you to that position? You know, it was honestly, I felt like a calling from God. It wasn't something, again, that I'd always seen myself doing. Mm. Um, Admittedly, you know, it's a conversation that you're having to have all the time about abortion and Mm. choice and when I was in law school when Roe v. Wade came up in our class conversation in con law I was quiet I did not want to get into anything controversial and so I really kind of went into it kicking and screaming of being like Lord why I felt like a fish out of water (laughs) I wasn't like you know some big person in the pro-life movement of you know this is who I am it was more like why do you have me here why am I doing this but I came at it from such a different perspective um and there's a whole story there, but I really cared about empowering women. And what God showed me was that there was a way I could do that, that them finding out that they were pregnant didn't mean that they had to derail their plans, but I was able to empower them and say, you can still go on and achieve your dreams. And we're going to come alongside you and support you in that. And Mm -hmm. so it kind of was a different tenor. And I realized that God had called me to that for that time because they needed a different voice. They needed somebody that came at it from that angle and helped people see this issue in a different way and I I just was very obedient and that's what I felt like and it was hard it was a hard transition uh, about six months in I was going through a really hard time um, in my job a really really low point and I remember walking down the street just tears streaming down my face and I am not typically a crier <laughs> and just looking up this guy and saying God you got the wrong girl I can't do this And it was as if I heard him say, okay, now I can use you. And I just learned a lot about obedience and surrender in that season. Um, And then everything changed after that. Once I stopped striving and trying to prove that I could do this, Mm. because I had to admit I can't, (laughs) it was like I let him take over and then things just changed. And it was an incredible season Mm. of growth and leadership and 
um, amazing team of people I got to work with and just amazing to see the stories that came through our office that I still keep up with some of those girls who said, you believed in me Mm -hmm. and you gave me confidence that told me I can do this. Um, And that was a really, really cool thing. And so looking back, I'm so so thankful for that experience Mm -hmm. that I had. Well, me and you are kind of similar in, in our ideologies. I mean, you hang out with my wife, so you understand that quite often. My question for you is, do you think that coming from the legal field into this field, like you came in with a thought process, like for me, I'd be going in, all right, this, this, this needs to be done. There's no compassion isn't my first thought. It's like, hey, like this is how we get it to change. Do you think that kind of held you back in the situations? It may have held me back, but it also, I think, helped. Okay. Because I think sometimes people, um, I find this in the nonprofit world Mm. a lot, where you have people with all the heart, right? Mm. All the compassion, and they are great at serving people, but there's no back office. Mm. There's that business (laughs) acumen. And so if you don't have a strong back office, your people on the front lines cannot do what they do. And so I do think I was able to bring some of that. I think God has definitely taught me empathy and compassion (laughs) um, over time because I am. I'm much more of a fixer Mm -hmm. and more black and white on things. But what I learned is that nonprofits need that. Nonprofits need a strong back office so that people in the front can do what they do. And I ended up working with a lot of pregnancy centers um, through a national consulting job that I had. And I would see that. And you would see pregnancy centers fail because they had people who were willing to meet the clients right where they were love those clients serve those clients but there's no one in the back that's handling the Mm. business Mm. and i remember um you know talking to people about is it a business or a ministry yes (laughs) you have to treat it as both Mm. and unfortunately a lot of times you see in ministry and business all the heart in the world but they may not have that business or legal side Mm -hmm. that actually equips them to do the work Mm -hmm. and so that's where i feel like god actually kind of prepared me for this where I felt like I was the wrong person um, (laughs) because I wasn't wired like so many other people. Mm -hmm. But then there's been so many times in my life that God has had to say, Callie, I wired you the way that you are for a reason Mm. because you bring something different. So rather than disqualifying yourself, see that unique piece of how I made you and realize there's a reason for that and there's something you can bring to the table too. Dang, that's that's deep. That's something I can take to my heart. So definitely... (laughs) So after Pregnancy Solutions, recently you transitioned to another job. You want to talk about that a little bit? You now work for The Twig. What exactly do you do for them? So I'm the director of programs at The Twig. And The Twig is a nonprofit, an organization that my parents actually started four years ago. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember I was on maternity leave um, with my youngest and talking to my mom about this crazy idea that she had. And she wanted to create a place where children in foster care could come shop for clothes. Mm -hmm. And Honestly, I was a bit of a naysayer. I was like, Mom, do we really need another clothing closet? Aren't there other people that are already doing this? Is this really a need? I'm very analytical like that. And she was like, well, God told me to do it, so we're going to do it. Very matter of fact, like, you're not going to talk me out of this. This is what I'm supposed to do. And I always say, I think she thought this was going to be some kind of empty nest hobby. um, And God had other plans for it. But she'll say, if she had known what it would become, she would have been too scared to take that step. Right. Wow. Um, wow and so good. God has just showed her enough, just enough that she was able to be brave and step into that next thing and that next thing. And then he has grown it beyond what her wildest dreams could be. And so they um, started a store. It's an upscale boutique for children in foster care where they can come shop once every month that they are in care and get new and like new items. And it's a very empowering experience for these kids. They come in and it feels like a store in the mall. Actually, we have people who come into it all the time thinking that they can come in and shop for their grandkids and we have to tell them this is not like a real store, but it's bright and it's clean and it has dressing rooms and everything is sorted by department and you feel like you're shopping in any other store. 
And so it started in the small space. They stepped out in faith and they said, we're going to rent this small space mm. for a year and see what happens. And they put it out to the community and just said, hey, we're doing this. Would you like to join with us? And amazingly, the community just responded and helped them pay for the rent and help them kind of put it together. And back then they were only open one Saturday a month. And that first month they served eight kids. Uh, we're now open every Saturday for kids in foster care, and we serve about 350 kids every month. Wow. Oh, my goodness. So it has grown a lot. Um, we've moved into a bigger space. We have a bigger footprint now. Um, we have about 200 volunteers. Um, we have a warehouse space where we have volunteers four days a week that are sorting donations, hanging, tagging, those sorts of things. We've got the store um, where during the week we're prepping it for the weekend because while we may only be open for shopping for four hours, we'll have 118 kids come through in four hours. It's like Black <laughs> Friday every Saturday. <laughs> so we have to be very well prepared for that. And so there was just this tremendous trajectory of growth. And so I was able to um, step away from my job at Pregnancy Solutions. And I really felt like it was time. I felt like God told me, you've done what I called you here to do. Mm-hmm. And it's time for something new. And I stepped into that job at The Twig. It was a tough transition. I will tell you, you go from being the boss and leading a team of 12 to working for your mom. Um, I feel like I can write a book on that someday because it, it's it's a change. Oh, yeah. You know, you're having to learn how to do things differently. Um, but now over a year into it, it's been really cool to see how God has just taken this, this, this small dream, this idea and has grown it. And we've been able to advocate on behalf of children in foster care to audiences that may not have ever thought about kids in care. Mm. There's usually this big disconnect, right, between um, the foster care community and the rest of the world because you don't see a child and know that they're in foster care. They Mm. may be in your school, your church. um, You see them in Target, and you don't know that they're in foster care. Um, And so they're kind of the faceless, nameless Mm -hmm. um, group within our own community, and we are able to be their voice. And so we go speak a lot about the needs of kids in foster care. We'll go speak to community groups, churches, um, and kind of get them on the forefront. And then we've also been able to be the bridge in a lot of ways between people who care about kids in foster care, but maybe say, well, I can't foster And we believe that not everyone can foster, but everyone can do something Mm -hmm. to help. And I think that this has provided a very tangible way for people in the community to come alongside the foster care community by saying, well, I can donate pajamas or I could, you know, help in those other ways. And so it's grown in depth and breadth over the past four years. um, And the trajectory just continues to go up and to the right. And so it's exciting. Um, We have big dreams. And uh, we'll see how those continue to unfold. It just speaks so much volumes of your mother and you. Like the fact is like me and Ben, we both watched Twig come from nothing to where it's at now. And it's just, it's crazy to see success like that. And like maybe success isn't the right word, but it, it is to me. Because when I see you guys succeed in this field and something that you guys are passionate, is something that God called you in, it's just exciting to see that. And I think what it is, is it's small steps of obedience. Mm. And it's easy to look from the outside and want to be able to replicate that. Yeah. And you want to be able to go from zero to 100. But realizing that zero to 100 took a lot of tiny, tiny steps mm-hmm. of obedience. And it, it took time and growth. You know, we didn't start out where we are today. Mm-hmm. It has taken small steps of growth and a lot of hard work, a lot of behind the scenes <laughs> work. Um, mm-hmm. My parents have put in countless hours to that place to make it what it is today. And their friends have too. Yeah. Um, 
And so it's a lot of small obedience behind the scenes. It's not always the flashy. It's not always what people see that really has grown it. It's just small steps of obedience, mm-hmm. day after day, showing up and doing the hard work and then trusting God to grow it in his way and in his time. Hmm. Well, that kind of like bleeds into what our topic is for today. And I, I just, since you have the experience of being with a nonprofit from the start to where it is now, Explain how a nonprofit is created. Like, what are the first steps that if someone wanted to start a nonprofit for a cause they believed in, what would they start off doing? So I have some advice on this. One, I do think you have to look around and see, is somebody already doing what you Mm. want to do? (laughs) Um, There is a quote in Experiencing God that I just always come back to. It's where he says to look around to see where God is already at work and join him in that work. Because sometimes what you can do is come alongside an organization and not duplicate services, Um, which is what I was trying to get my mom to do at the beginning when I said, (laughs) aren't there other places? Um, But there are some times where God calls you to something unique Mm. and that you have courage to step into that. And that's okay. You know, we can sometimes disqualify ourselves and saying, well, there's already so many people doing this. Why should I do it? You know, writing a book. Look at the bookstore. There's so many people writing books. Why in the world should I write a book? But the world needs your voice or the world needs your vision. The world needs that thing that God has put on your heart to do. So I think that's one of the the starting points. Um, The way a nonprofit is established is, I mean, there's a lot of technical side of it. Mm -hmm. You know, filing your corporate documents, those kind of things. You have to have a board. Um, of directors that influence you. And the difference between a for-profit company and a non-profit company is a for-profit company, there are shareholders or an owner that they're receiving, hopefully, um, (laughs) revenue from the company, right? Like there's somebody's pocket that it's going into. That is not the case for a non-profit. And people often get confused about this. Um, Non-profits have revenue. Mm. They do have revenue, but it is not lining anyone's pocket. That's the distinction. They can pay their employees' salaries. Um, They do generate revenue because they have to pay their bills and things like that. But the difference is is that it goes back into the organization Mm -hmm. in one way or another. It's not going into some owner's or shareholder's pocket. And so um, so that's something people often wonder Mm -hmm. um, about nonprofits. But you do have a board of directors that helps run the organization. And that helps, you know, that transparency and helps you stay on task and it's important to choose the right board members who understand your vision that you work well with Um, and then there's the practical side of it you know filing for your tax-exempt status Um, that's what the 501c3 comes from that's actually a um, part of the tax code is the 501c3 Mm -hmm. there's also 501c4s out there there's different types of public charities and so you need to know what type yours is going to be and you file your tax-exempt status um, in that way And so a lot of it's more corporate structure kind Mm. of stuff. Um, But the idea is that you are bringing a benefit to society, that you are contributing and that the work that is being done there is not for any one person or, you know, a group of people's benefit. It's for society at large. Mm. And so that's what a nonprofit does. You hit on the whole income part of a nonprofit. I'm curious, um, as a mother, you know, you want to take care of your family, you want to take care of every part of your life as well. How do you kind of juggle bringing in money for the organization, but also wanting to take care of yourself and your family. Well, that's where the board of directors comes in. Okay. Who, which that's one of the great things about Mm -hmm. it is that they are the ones who set salaries. Um, And so, and they're not getting paid. 
So they are coming in and they're saying, what value does this person add to the organization? So I'm not deciding what I get paid or Mm. what other people get paid. And And so it's like a protection for yourself. Like you're not, hey, like I'm getting this much for me. Like, so when people look at your books, like what the heck? How is she getting this much money? Right. The board of directors, it says that person brings this much value to the organization and they should be compensated accordingly. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes nonprofits get a bad rap for that. You'll hear about CEOs that get paid a lot of money. But what you have to realize is that they'd probably get paid five to 10 times as much if they were in a for-profit company Mm. because Mm. of their skills and their experience. And so, and the board of directors is able to do that independently and saying it is worth, it is a value to the organization for us to pay this person to keep them in this job for their expertise and what they're doing. Mm. And so I think that's something that it's important. The public doesn't really understand, but it is important to have a very competent leader in charge of the nonprofit. That's how they become successful. It's funny you bring that up. We talked about this actually on a recent podcast. We were talking about like how March of Dime, like 10% of their, all their proceeds actually go to helping people. But like their CEO gets like $2 million. That makes more sense now because it's like, hey, that you need someone competent at that top. So it's worth paying that extra money to kind of protect your investment of your nonprofit. And that's the thing. And what nonprofits constantly have to look at is the balance, right? Mm-hmm. Between what are we paying our people versus what kind of work are we doing? And sometimes that can get out of whack. And yeah. that is on the board of directors to make those kinds of calls and those decisions. But you think about how large some of these organizations are, how mm-hmm. large their budgets are. Mm-hmm. And if you had a for-profit company that was managing that kind of that many locations or that many staff or that much of a budget, you would pay them accordingly because you need someone of that kind of competence and skill level to run it. How are you going to recruit somebody to run your nonprofit organization Mm -hmm. um, if you're not, if you can't pay them competitively? And again, Hmm. it's typically less than they would make in the marketplace at large. So they're, they're under, usually underpaid for their skills and abilities yeah. because typically they have a buy-in to the cause, you would yeah. hope. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so that, that, that plays into it, but mm-hmm. that's why. And so again, people get, will get bad raps, but you need to look at what is, if this were a for-profit company, mm-hmm. what would that person get paid? And you need someone with the skills and expertise and competence to run an organization of that size mm-hmm. so that you as a donor know that your donation is going to be handled in mm-hmm. the best way. Mm-hmm. And that is what we want to see with nonprofits is transparency. Um, but there's there's a, there's this big thing out there. Oh, you don't want to pay. We don't want to pay our donations to go to overhead. In some ways you do mm-hmm. because that means someone's paying attention to what the work, what the nonprofit is doing. Mm-hmm. You don't mm-hmm. want it all to go to overhead, but you want people that are running it and managing it competently mm-hmm. and that are growing a quality product. And I think people want to invest in a quality product, whether that's a nonprofit or a for-profit company. You want to mm-hmm. see results. You want to see that good is being done through this organization. Mm-hmm. And that does require competent leadership mm-hmm. um, who does who do deserve to be compensated for their time. So like the people who are investing in these nonprofits are like the shareholders and the investment is the product that's being put out by these nonprofits. That's a great way of putting it. What is what is the difference they're making in the world? Mm-hmm. That is your ROI. Mm-hmm. And so you want to see that. But it sometimes it does mm-hmm. require, you know, good people in those positions to have that kind of an ROI. And so that is something I, I actually am pretty passionate about having helping to educate people yeah. about nonprofits and how they're structured and why some do make an incredible impact. And no, like it, I said, you see, you hear horror stories of ones who it's just a shell, right? Yeah. And you have to watch out for those. There's several out there, unfortunately, in like the veteran space mm, where definitely. people have created companies and you donate because the name sounds good, yeah. mm-hmm. but they're actually not doing 
really impactful work. (laughs) And so there are ways that you can check up on that. Like Charity Navigator is a great website, the Gift Giver's Guide, um, where you can look and you can see what are they actually doing? Mm -hmm. But always running it through that filter again. If you Mm -hmm. see a highly paid CEO um, of trying to run it through that lens Mm -hmm. of, well, what you know, what kind of a staff are they managing? What kind of a budget are they running? Like, mm. I want somebody who is worthy of being paid that mm. much and has that kind of skills and expertise running it. Now, if they're just sitting in their garage and have a PayPal account that <laughs> is just racking in money and they're not actually doing anything, yeah. you don't want that. Yeah, um, but if there is if there is an ROI in the community where you're seeing, man, they're really moving the needle, they're really making a difference, um, it's definitely mm. worthwhile. Definitely. What would be the number one thing that you struggle with working inside of a nonprofit? The number one thing I struggle with, ooh, it depends on the day, man. <laughs> um, it depends on the day. It's, it's really, I don't think that different. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to, you know, just like you have to keep customers happy in a for-profit company, you know, you've got to keep your donors happy. You've mm-hmm. got to keep them informed. You've got to keep them feeling like they're part of it. Um, so I don't think that's a struggle. I think that's a cool challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, volunteers are the same way. <laughs> you know, that is a challenge. A different. It's very different leading volunteers than it is leading employees. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have to show up. You know, <laughs> yeah. they don't have to keep coming and they bring incredible value that's often difficult to quantify. Mm-hmm. Um, and so having that's that's a big piece of it as well. Um, but I think the nonprofit sector, it's incredible mm-hmm. what is able to be done in that way. Yeah, you don't have those big, you know, I listen to a lot of stories about entrepreneurs that create companies, mm-hmm. you know, and they have these, you know, huge buyouts, you know, and they make tons of, you're not going to have that in a nonprofit. <laughs> Again, your ROI is the impact you make in the community. Definitely. Definitely. And so you have to kind of reframe it that way, mm-hmm. reframe your wins. Mm-hmm. That's something I've been thinking about a lot lately is reframing wins. Mm-hmm. That in a nonprofit world, your wins look very different than in the for-profit world. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to name them. You have to reframe them. What does a win look like? Mm-hmm. And that's a little bit of a challenge going from a for-profit um, you know, world to a nonprofit world is that your wins are different. Mm-hmm. But just as important. Yeah. So like with nonprofits, I would assume that I'll ask this last question, like marketing is completely different because it's more about the story you guys are telling than it is the products more or less. 100% is a lot of storytelling. <laughs> it is a lot of bringing people alongside what you mm-hmm. are doing. Mm-hmm. And people want that. People want to be part of a winning team. People yes. want to be part of something that's making a difference. And so what you have to do is tell the stories so they feel like they're a part of something because they are, mm-hmm. but you have to figure out how to communicate them to that. Wow. And that really drives donor engagement mm-hmm. for sure because they people want to be part of a winning team that's producing a quality product. Mm-hmm. And so you have to tell the story just like you would for an investor for mm-hmm. a for-profit company, right? You want someone to invest in your company. You're going to go pitch to some venture capitalist. Mm-hmm. You're going to tell the story, <laughs> right? Yeah. You're doing the same thing in the nonprofit world, but in a different way where mm-hmm. you're telling the stories of impact. Again, I cannot show you, you know, this, this budget sheet, you know, and saying these are our projected, you know, yeah. revenues for the year. That's not what sells yeah. somebody in yeah. a nonprofit. No. What sells somebody is that impact that you are making. And so that requires great storytelling mm. to say this is the impact that the organization is making. Mm. You know, I um, recently went to the Coca-Cola factory in Atlanta. And um, in the last six, in the last year, I transitioned from for-profit into the nonprofit sector. And um, everything that you're talking about today is like right on. Like, you know, my ROI was, um, you know, how many policies that I sell. And now it's, you know, how many people 
did we impact? Yes. So it's cr- it's crazy to see that, but it's also crazy to see the for-profit companies taking the same aspect and putting it into their marketing ploys. So Coca-Cola sits you down into a room, very dark room, and plays you know this video of how they impact the world right and you know it's the it's the military people who are drinking coca-cola when they get back with their families and all that kind of stuff and literally at the end of the video you're like where can i buy coca-cola right. <laughs> like and so it's the same thing in the non nonprofit sector is you know we have to get that story to the people and and, and for-profit companies they have they figured this out and yes. <laughs> people want to be part of something you know mm-hmm. you buy apple products because you want to be the kind of person who buys apple products right <laughs> because that means something yeah, right you want community yeah and it tells something it tells the world something about you and it, it def- helps kind of define you mm-hmm. and, and so the for-profit companies have figured this out how to kind of tug at their heartstrings how to make people feel like they're part of something of the mm-hmm. apple community mm-hmm. or coca-cola or whatever it is and you mm-hmm. see a lot of that right mm-hmm. now in storytelling and for-profit and it's the same in nonprofit mm-hmm. because people are moved by story mm-hmm. i mean that you can see throughout history <laughs> people are moved by story and so that is important to any business venture. But you're right. You have to tell it a little bit differently, even in the nonprofit world yeah. where you're showing the impact as a win. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Callie, thank you so much for joining us this week. We really appreciate it. Is there anything you want to plug? Do you want to plug the website or you want to plug social media, whatever you want to do right now? Sure. People can uh, check out the twig at the mm-hmm. Um, and you can find us on Facebook and we again are telling stories there and I think that's important um, to keep this in front of people Um, and for us it's telling the stories about the kids in care again they are the ones who people aren't thinking about aren't talking about you know when it comes to legislative reform it is not the hottest topic I want to make it the hottest topic I want our politicians to care as much about what are we doing for kids in foster care as what are we doing in all these other areas that have people that are championing those causes Mm. so the more that we can tell the stories and get the word out there I think is a benefit and I would encourage people look in your own community are people helping in this space and again what can you do to come alongside them can you make a meal for someone who's fostering a child Mm. could you bring them something could you offer to babysit what could you do because not everyone can foster but everyone can do something to help Mm. that's amazing guys again the twigcares.com correct or dot org dot com dot com All right, guys, that's all for us this week. Be sure to check out all our content on InfoPilgrims.com. We have new podcasts coming out this week, so check that out. From all of us here at InfoPilgrims, we say thank you again. And until next time, let's make America think again. I made you promises and times I've tried to hear from heaven but I talk the whole time I think I made you too small I've never feared you at all no if you touched my face would I know you Looked into my eyes, could I behold you? What do I know of you who spoke me into motion? Where have I even stood but the shore along your ocean? Are you fire? Are you fury? Are you sacred? Are you beautiful? 